A roadside fire, apparently started by a lighted cigarette, near the old cemetery on Sugar Hill, destroyed the Delia Congdon house, one of the oldest in town. The house had not been occupied, except transiently, since the murder of Delia Congdon, July 24, 1908, as it had the reputation of being haunted. At eight years old, Delia Congdon contracted scarlet fever, which left her deaf and mute. She lived alone in a farmhouse on Sugar Hill in East Wallingford, Vermont. The house was built by her father, James Headley Congdon. Delia moved back home to the farmhouse as an adult after both her parents had passed away. She felt safe living alone in the house, knowing that her uncle was just down the road and her neighbors looked out for her. Between 10 and 11 o'clock a.m. on July 24, 1908, Mrs. Mary Sprague, a neighbor, noticed Delia's mail had not been removed from the box and the milk was left to sour on the front step. She sent her two sons to check on her to see if she was not feeling well. At first, they could not find her until they looked in the pantry. Lying on the floor in a pool of her own blood was the body of 41-year-old Delia Congdon. The pantry walls were spattered with blood. She had been preparing her breakfast when she was attacked from behind. She did not hear her attacker, and she could not scream. Quote, the woman was struck on the head, and the club was twisted in her clothing, so it would choke her to death if life remained. State's attorney Lawrence was involved in the investigation, and this is part of what he had to say. The room in which she was found was about six feet by ten, and all of the walls were spattered with blood. There were pools of blood on the floor around the body. A butter worker in one corner of the room was stained as if the woman had struck her head when falling, and a pool of blood nearby seemed to bear out this theory. From the appearance of the head, it would seem as if the body had been dragged into the middle of the room. Her sleeves were rolled up, and the arms had several black and blue marks, also blood stains. The head was resting on the right side, and the arms were folded around the head, as if to shield the face. The underclothing was disarranged, and evidences of a criminal assault were found, although this will not be fully determined until the autopsy is performed. Evidence was found to indicate robbery as the motive, some of the furniture being ransacked, and drawers being found open, and the contents of the drawers thrown about. Rutland Daily Herald, Saturday, July 25th, 1908. In the barn, police found freshly slept in hay, and carved in the wall were the initials E.K. On July 11th, 1908, 13 days before the murder, two men escaped from the asylum in Waterbury, Vermont, John Keenan and Elroy Kent. Now, they weren't particularly concerned about John Keenan getting very far because he had a uh, wooden leg. Um... But they also weren't really too concerned about Elroy Kent, which I find concerning. One source states that, um, oh, the police thought he would steal a bike and then be sent back and it would be no issue. So they really didn't try too hard to find him at first. Um, but this is what they had to say about Kent. Kent has two escapes to his credit previous to this one. He escaped from Newfane Jail and in August 1905, he escaped from the state hospital. He has served a sentence in the House of Correction and a couple of them in the state's prison for burglary or similar crimes. On August 19th, he got out through windows and was caught through Sheriff Tracy in Connecticut 
where he was arrested after burglary. He was recommitted on October of the same year, having enjoyed liberty two months. Both of the men belonged to the lawn mowing gang and were chained to the machines. The hair of both men is cut noticeably short. Kent has a scar on the upper part of his forehead, which he received by jumping from a moving train when trying to elude an officer, his skull being fractured. He has shot marks on the back and leg. So they ended up being right about John Keenan. He was captured pretty quickly. Um, but here's some more details of Kent's escape. Kent pried off the latch of his door and liberated Keenan, and the two sealed the wall around the building by using a spring bed as a ladder. Keenan, who has an artificial leg, is unable to travel rapidly, was captured late Monday night about five miles from Waterbury on the road to Stowe. Kent, who is still at large, is a Wyndham County boy with a long criminal record. He formerly lived in Brooklyn. He began his criminal career when he was seven years old by breaking into a house when the family were at church. In 19, 1896, he was caught while attempting to enter B.M. Adams' store in Townsend and was sentenced to two years in the House of Correction. Later, his name was connected with burglaries in Williamsville, where he worked, the railroad station, and A.M. Merrifield's store being broken into. In May 1899, Kent broke into Adam Blood's house in Putney. Sheriff A.W.J. Wilkins, hi Luna, now a Brattleboro, got trace of him in Burlington. Soon afterward, Kent was shot in the back while leaving a store with his arms filled with plunder. After treatment in a hospital, he was sentenced to three years in the state prison. He completed his sentence in January 1902 and came to Brattleboro. A few days later, he stole $8 from his cousin, W.G. Kent. For this offense, he was sentenced in 1903 to a term in the state prison. He was transferred to the insane hospital at Waterbury in 1904, and in August 1905, he escaped through an attic window after unlocking three doors. He has a deep scar on his forehead and shot scars on his back and his right leg. On July 27th, the Bannington Banner released more details of the case, including the autopsy. So the autopsy showed that Delia Congdon was outraged and strangled to death, then pounded on the head with an instrument used to cut thin wood consisting of a wooden handle and a long blade, six cuts being inflicted on her head, none of which pierced the skull. Kent, who is 33 years of age, was born near Sugar Hill Pond, a distance of less than two miles from the house in which Miss Congdon was murdered. He was sent to the insane asylum about four years ago from the east side of the mountain, where it is understood he attempted to cut his uncle's throat. He was John Keenan, a murderer, escaped by using a key which had been made by another inmate. He was first seen in the vicinity of East Wallingford a week ago last Tuesday and remained in the neighborhood until the murder was committed. He had talked with several persons, but no one recognized him, and although they saw he was, a, he was mentally unsound, he seemed to be harmless, and nothing was done to determine who he was or where he came from. He asked for work, and when told he could probably secure some employment from some of the farmers during haying, he said that he would do nothing but pitch hay, that he would not assist with the mowing, raking, or other work. His strange talk led the residents to believe that he was a half-witted tramp who had drifted in. Yesterday, the authorities found that he had been sleeping in abandoned buildings in the vicinity and in the old house on the Buffham Farm on Sugar Hill, where he was born. 
They found where he had stayed one or more nights, and on the door he had carved the following, E. Kent, July 22, 1908. It is believed that he slept in Miss Congdon's barn on the night before the murder, and on the inside of the barn door he cut the initials E.K., the letters being identical with those found on the door of the Buffum farmhouse. Through a crack in the barn he could see into the woman's bedroom from where he lay, the matted hay showing where he had slept. It is believed that when Miss Congdon unlocked the door Friday morning, he stole in when her back was turned and grabbed her by the throat, the imprints of his fingers being plainly visible. After outraging the woman, he killed her with the weapon and fled. Per the Wallingford Times, the Spragues were one of the families that Elroy Kent asked about work. And a reminder, the Spragues were the very same people who discovered the murder. So it went on to state, While talking to the Spragues, Kent saw Delia in her yard, asked who she was, and proceeded to say what sort of things he would like to do to her. He was told that the neighbors would shoot full of holes anyone who tried such a thing. Now, I don't know how true that story is, but I fully support that neighbor's notion there. Um, unfortunately, he did go on to murder her anyway. And in, a, in an obviously very brutal way. So I'm going to read some of the carvings that were found later and some of the reports, and the way I say it, it's it's not funny what happened whatsoever, um, but some of the reports of his sightings um, were a little humorous, so bear with me here. By August 14th, Elroy Kent still had not been caught, and people were reporting seeing evidence of him being there pretty much everywhere. Um, one report included a man stating that between Bellows Falls and Rutland, he counted 487 carvings of E.K. I'm not sure how true that is, considering some of the other reports included um, people seeing an expert swimmer um, <laughs> swimming repeatedly so that his wake formed the letters E.K. And they said it's believed that was Elroy Kent. And then another report stated that a man was drinking the water from the Highgate Springs, and after he was done, the bubbles formed the letters E.K. Um, so obviously some of those reports were absolutely ridiculous. On October 21st, almost three months after the murder, a man who called himself William Allen was arrested in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, while trying to sell a stolen bicycle. One question, he stated his mind was blank, and he had no recollection of what happened in the past. In his possession, he had a diary, several cents in change, a small looking glass, two knives, and a letter. This letter was addressed to Don D. Grout, superintendent of the insane asylum in Waterbury. It was signed, Mr. Elroy Kent. A few days later, while subjected to a third degree, he confessed to a robbery in Holyoke and then surprised police by stating that he was wanted in Vermont for a crime in July. He did not say what the crime was, but stated that there was a $500 reward for his capture. Eventually, he admitted to his identity and was taken to Rutland, Vermont, and held at the House of Correction until November 28th. Judge Hazelton ruled that he should be transferred back to the Waterbury Asylum for observation as to his mental condition. This caused some public outrage as he escaped that very asylum and committed murder. 
He was brought back to Rutland on March 27, 1909, to stand trial. March 31, 1909. Ken, when arraigned, pleaded not guilty, but did not speak again during the day. He appeared to take little interest in anything, and seemed to be asleep part of the time. He is apparently in the best of health. The Burlington Daily News. Kent, fat and unconcerned. Kent has greatly changed since he was sent back to the Waterbury Asylum following his capture at Pittsfield, Massachusetts last October. He has shaved his mustache and is much stouter, being apparently in the best of health. His eyes were half-closed most of the time, and occasionally he seemed to be asleep. He offered no suggestions to his lawyers, and they never spoke to him. The Burlington Free Press, March 31st, 1909. After Kent had pleaded not guilty today, the greater part of time was occupied in securing a jury. Forty men were examined, and both sides availed themselves of the privilege of preemptory challenge several times. Many of the men had formed previous opinions, and most of them being farmers, showed a desire to escape from the duty so that they might avail themselves of the running maple sap. The examination of witnesses was begun immediately after the jurors were sworn in. The Bangor Daily Times, March 31st, 1909. To that, I have to say, so much Vermont, so little time. The following is some notable testimony shared by the Rutland Daily Herald, March 31st, 1909. The first witness called was George Sprague. He lived near Sugar Hill and was one of the people who found Daley Congdon dead. When did you last see her alive? When I was at work there. Did you see her alive after that? Yes, sir. Where? Between the barn and the house. Did she live alone? Yes. On a farm? Yes. Who managed the farm? She did, with hired help. Did you see her after that? Yes, the next day. Where were you? Hanging at bullies. Who was hanging? Us boys. Then he went on to tell, uh, finding the body. We went down cellar and looked all round by lighting matches and with a lantern. We went in where she slept. The clothes were thrown over the bed and a pillow was on the chair. The drawers of the bureau were open like a pair of stairs and things were strewn around. The stove in the kitchen had a tea kettle and a platter with potatoes and toasted bread. I went into the back of the house and in the milk room lay Delia Congdon. How did you know it was her? By her looks, she lay on her back. Her shoes were off, one by the door and the other over the butter worker. Her clothing was pulled up around her body. Her arms were folded up over her head, as if to protect herself. There was blood on the floor. A broken stick was lying over her neck. Was she alive? No, sir, she wasn't. Did you know of an autopsy being performed there? Yes, sir. Was it the same body that you found? It was. Did you notice whether or not the woman's clothing was torn? No, sir. I didn't. Mr. Sprague then told of staying with the body to see that nothing was touched or moved. Mrs. Mary Ann Sprague, who was said to have known Delia Congdon all her life, was called to the witness stand. How did you happen to go to Miss Congdon's this Thursday? I knew she was ill, so I went to see her. What did you first notice? Some mail in the box? Did you go in? I did. The front door was open. I took in the milk, but didn't find her. What did you find? I walked through and saw the kitchen, as though she was setting dinner. The beer was left open and things turned up and stirred up. I went along and my arm hit a side of the house and it set my arm tingling and I says, I won't go any further. Something is wrong. Did you call? 
No, because I knew she was deaf. Where did you go then? I went to Bailey's, who lived nearby, and told the family that something was wrong. Darwin Sprague was called to the witness stand. Did you do some work on Delia Condon's farm last summer? Yes, sir. We cut hay. Did you go with your brother the day she was found dead? Yes, sir. What day was it? July 24th. Where did you stay that night? At home. How long before you found the dead body did you cut the hay? Two days. Where did you put the hay? In the barn. After you found the body, did you go to the barn? Yes, the next day. What did you find? A place on the new hay where somebody had slept. Did you see any other place in the barn which attracted your attention? I saw a tobacco bag where someone had pulled the tinfoil off. Were the doors open? No, sir. How did you get in? Through the door. Cross-examination by Mr. Spellman. Did you go to the house the day Miss Congdon was found? Yes, sir. Who was with you? My brother and John Bully. What was the condition of the bedroom? The bed was opened and the drawers in the bureau were open. Expert declared him to be sane. Dr. D. A. Schurz of Montreal, an expert on insanity, made several trips to Waterbury for the purpose of observing Kent, and reported finally that in his opinion, the man was sane, but a moral degenerate, and that he had been faking insanity. He stated that Kent's delusions and hallucinations were not true, but simulated. None of the officials at the asylum would swear that they believed Kent to be insane, and when Superintendent Grout was asked why Kent was confined at the institution, he said that it was beyond his comprehension. No one who heard the testimony in the second day of the trial of Elroy Kent for the murder of Miss Delia Congdon doubted the wisdom of Judge E.L. Waterman in excluding the public, especially women, from the courtroom. The exhibition of blood-stained garments of the murdered woman and the testimony of Dr. B.H. Stone, director of the State Laboratory of Hygiene, concerning the results of his autopsy on her body were not pleasing things to see or hear. Dr. Stone's testimony was of such a nature that it cannot be printed in full. It revealed the fact that Miss Congdon was subjected to the most outrageous treatment before she was killed. The Bennington Evening Banner, April 1st, 1909. The state in the trial of Elroy Kent for the murder of Adelia Congdon introduced another witness today, Dr. W.W. W. Townsend, a physician of the House of Correction, who testified that Elroy Kent had admitted assaulting Delia Congdon. When he asked Kent if the woman might not have met her death in a scuffle they had in the kitchen, Kent replied, It wasn't in the kitchen, but in the milk room. This room was where the body was found. The Bar Daily Times, April 1st, 1909. Notable testimony of Dr. D. Grout, Superintendent of the State Insane Asylum at Waterbury. Won't you, doctor, describe some of his actions, his peculiarities, his eccentricities, his illusions, if he has any? It would be impossible to give any opinion as he was under my observations. He has shown, to my knowledge, no delusions, illusions, or hallucinations, nor strange actions. There have been a few things concerning his actions which we have thought questionable. I don't know how a man can tell about a horse who kicks in the harness when he is being well-fed in a box stall. That is just an illustration. What is the result of a blow in the head? It is too broad a question. I can't answer it. What do you think would be the result of this blow Kent had? Nothing could result. What do you mean by that answer? I mean, he is just as God made him. There is no history that shows he is any different after the thing occurred than before. 
What do you think of this man, taking everything into consideration? I should classify him as a moral imbecile, or as in French, a demi-fool. There is an inability in this man, the same as a person who is colorblind. This man or any man may be morally blind, but efficient in all other ways. A Mr. Taggart testified that 10 days before the murder, a stranger called at the factory who said that he was born in the neighborhood and that his name was Kent. The stranger also displayed a scar on his forehead, according to the witness, and explained how he got it. Miss Congdon crossed the road in front of her house while the witness and the stranger stood talking in front of the factory, and the supposed Kent is alleged to have made a remark about her, which caused Mr. Taggart to say that the stranger would get his body full of lead if he tried anything like that. Mr. Taggart further said that while the stranger sat in the factory door, he was busy with his jackknife, and that after he had gone, the letter E was found cut in the door casing. Bennington Banner, April 6, 1909. Attorney R.A. Lawrence, Testimony Kent sent for me and asked me when I was going to take him to court to plead guilty, and I told him I was state's attorney, and that what he said might be used against him. He said he knew that, but he was anxious to have it cleaned up. I told him he was charged with the murder of Delia Congdon, and if found guilty, he might be hanged. He said, I ought to be hanged after doing what I have done. Deputy Sheriff Leonard testified that Kent made a confession to him at the House of Correction, that he went to the Congdon house to assault Miss Congdon, and when asked why he killed her, he replied, she made a noise and I was afraid other people would hear her. The officer testified that Kent told him that Miss Congdon saw him as he entered her house, he said that he seized her and threw her into the milk room. Kent told the officers afterwards that he wanted to go into court and plead guilty. He admitted stealing provisions at Wallingford farmhouses soon after the murder. A woman named Emma Baker, who lived just down the road of Delia Congdon, testified that on the day of the murder, a strange man approached her house, said that his name was Elroy Kent, and asked for some matches. This showed that he was within the vicinity the day of the murder. St. Albans Weekly Messenger, April 8th, 1909. You guys remember John Keenan, the man who escaped with the help of Elroy Kent? Well, the defense thought it would be a good idea to put him on the stand. Um, let's read about that. So, he, like Kent, said that they served human stew at the asylum and he said that one day he found in his stew a piece of rubber, presumably a fragment of a woman's garter. Another day, he got drunk, he said, from eating stew made out of a man who had delirium tremens. Yikes. Dr. Schurz, who was the principal witness called by the state in rebuttal, said that he had an interview with Kent this week in addition to examinations made last winter, and the recent interview had not altered his view that Kent was not a lunatic, but was a man of low mental type. Kent had told the doctor that he escaped from the asylum simply to gratify his passions. On cross-examination, Dr. Schur said that he might be mistaken in thinking Kent sane, but yet did not think that Kent might have had an insane impulse, which he could not control. It was impossible for an insane man to have a good memory. One of the best Shakespearean scholars the witness ever knew was a dangerous lunatic. The physician thought that Kent's hallucinations were false because he seldom discussed them. Keenan, on the other hand, who was, recent, who was really insane, began to talk about his fancies as soon as he was questioned. The Bennington Banner, April 9th, 1909. On April 10th, 1909, Elroy Kent was found guilty of murder in the first degree. 
Kent took the verdict with absolute calmness, and when being taken out by a deputy, remarked, I don't care a damn anyway. After Kent was found guilty, the defense made an appeal to the Supreme Court. On November 2, 1909, the ruling was sustained, and he was ordered to be confined to hard labor at the Windsor State Prison until October 13th. He was then to be in solitary confinement until he was hanged. The last effort to save the condemned man was made New Year's Day, when W.S. Lobel, superintendent of the prison, where Kent today gave up his life to the state, applied to Governor John A. Meade for executive intervention, intercession, rather. Superintendent Lovell made the application on the ground that Kent should not be hanged because he was insane. Mr. Lovell appeared before the governor as representative of the views of a great many people in the state who have been interested in saving Kent from the gallows. Governor Meade refused to take any action in the matter because no new evidence bearing on the affair entered into the application. The governor said in his refusal, I fear that I have no right to interfere in these cases unless new facts have been discovered. Kent has been tried by a jury of 12 men, presided over by a judge of the Supreme Court, and was convicted. He then had a hearing before the legislature, which by a very large majority refused to intervene. St. Albans Daily Messenger, January 5th, 1912. Within the enclosure of the state prison here tomorrow, Elroy Kent will meet the fate decreed by the law, which demands a life for a life. He sleeps tonight under the shadow of the gallows. When another night falls, he will have entered upon that last sleep from which there is no awakening, this side of eternity. The only interest shown by Kent today, in the event of tomorrow, was to inquire what would be done with his body. This morning, for the first time since he entered the death cell three months ago, he asked to see Superintendent W.S. Lobel, he talked for some time with the superintendent about various subjects, but the only time they referred to the execution was when he asked about what would happen to his body. He was told that he would be given a proper funeral with a hearse, bearers, and burial service at the grave in the prison cemetery, the prison chaplain presiding. This seemed to satisfy him, and therefore he refused to discuss his case in any form. Superintendent Lobel tried a number of times to lead up to the subject in the hope that Kent would confess but each time the man stated bluntly that he did not wish to discuss his case. He had been told a number of times that spiritual advice was available if he wished, and each time he refused absolutely to see a clergyman. The prison superintendent asked Kent this morning if he wished to see his mother, stating that her expenses would be paid if he wished to have her come. He thanked the superintendent, but stated that it could do no good. With the exception of jumping from one subject to another, Mr. Lobel stated that the man talked rationally enough, and that he showed no emotion whatever. Superintendent Noble called Kent's mother by telephone this morning, asking if she desired to have her son's body sent to her home, stating that he would personally defray the expense. Mrs. Kent replied that she could not give her son as good a burial service as would be provided for him at the prison, and therefore she preferred to have him buried in the prison cemetery. The Rutland Daily Herald, January 5th, 1912. Kent began his death march at just four minutes after one o'clock. He was dressed in his cell, and when approached by Sheriff Kinry and asked if he was ready, he said yes, and smiled to the deputies who were there as an escort. He walked with his eyes to the floor until he approached the guard rooms, and there he hesitated a second, shook hands with Superintendent W.S. Lobel, and as he said goodbye, he seemed to whimper just the least bit. This was absolutely his only show of weakness during the entire 
proceedings. The party advanced at once to the scaffold, each having his position on the death trap. Kent was seated in a chair, and for three minutes Reverend M. Ford prayed. At 1.14 o'clock, Kent was ordered to stand, and his hands and arms and legs and feet were securely fastened. And when this work was finished, Sheriff Kinry asked Kent if he had anything to say, why the sentence of the law should not be carried out. He looked into his face and said, no. The black cap was arranged over his head, and he was placed on the trap. The trap was released at 1.18 o'clock by an electric device. It worked instantly, and Kent shot downward. But the strain was too great for the rope, which broke near the ring in the gallows. As Kent's body fell to the floor, the deputy sheriffs and physicians rushed to his side. At 1.25 o'clock, an examination was made. With the aid of a stethoscope, a slight heart action was noted. Seventeen minutes later, the body was taken down. At no time did the body even quiver. The following statement was given out by Dr. McEwen to the witnesses within the prison walls. Owing to an unavoidable accident, to which no one was responsible, the condemned man's neck was only partially broken by the fall. He suffered no conscious thought, however, throughout, and died from the shock. Other sources stated that he was conscious after that fall and was in complete agony. That is definitely a brutal way to go, not unlike the brutal way that he made Delia Congdon go. Delia Congdon was described as kind and friendly towards her neighbors and their children. She would often offer cookies to the children as they walked home from school. She was active in the Christian Endeavor Society and belonged to the Congregational Church. Although described in the papers as deaf and mute, her friends stated that they could understand her perfectly well. Her speech was just more quiet than most. Perhaps Elroy Kent, who brutally took her life, did not realize that she could cry out, that he would be punished for his crime. Thank you guys so much for listening. It is too bad that the house burnt down in 1938. Obviously, it was a very old house, and a historic murder did unfortunately happen there. But it does make you wonder, if that house was haunted, could the area still be haunted after it burns down? Where did the ghosts go? So, the house is apparently very close to the cemetery, and I did go to the cemetery. And, like a crazy person, I went during the winter because I'm very impatient. And I had to, like, truck through with my winter boots, and it was pretty deep snow, I won't lie. And I did have to dig out the headstone to look at it um again because i'm crazy but i did tell her that i will be back in the springtime to bring flowers um but interestingly while i was looking for it i heard a woman scream in the woods i know that sounds made up and i'm not saying it's definitely paranormal because even at the time i was like well you know i always try to like think of it from a logical standpoint i was like well i know this is like the middle of nowhere and no cars have driven by but who knows what that scream could be and at first when I was reading about the case it said that she was mute so I was like huh I don't think that I'm not sure if she could scream or not but and obviously this is very sad but the more I read into the case the more um, I found out that she could make a screaming noise and that obviously is very sad um, but I wouldn't mind finding out if that area is haunted and 
Perhaps I'll look into that more in the spring when I don't have to literally dig through the snow. Um, another interesting tidbit here is the rope that was used to hang Elroy Kent, the one that snapped. Um, some sources state that it was the same rope that was used to hang Mary Rogers, and that was a murderess of Vermont. So perhaps that is why it snapped. I don't know. Um, crazy case. Thanks again, guys, for listening. I'll be posting some photos on the Instagram at the Axe Murder Diaries. If you have any requests or questions or anything, um, you can always um, inbox me there. Inbox me? Message me there. Or email me at theaxemurderdiaries at gmail.com. Alright, thanks. Bye.